to the Caspian Podcast, the podcast with the Caspian Post, with me, Mark Elliott. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Caspian Podcast. My name is Mark Elliott, and with me today is Amanda Paul. Now, Amanda is, let me check this, a Senior Policy Analyst at the European Policy Centre, EPC. And she's an expert on Turkish foreign policy and, and domestic policy, conflict resolution, EU policy in the Eastern neighbourhood, and, and a whole lot more. Um, and uh, welcome, uh, Amanda. Could you tell us a little bit more about what exactly the EPC is? Hi, Mark. And first of all, thank you very much for um, having me on this podcast today. Um, in fact, the European Policy Centre, um, it's a Brussels-based think tank. Um, so we carry out research on different EU areas and policies, everything from um, economic integration to different foreign policy issues like transatlantic, uh, the Eastern Partnership. Um, we do events, we do publications. Uh, we're also a membership organization, everybody from big, big multinationals to NGOs. Um, and we were founded around 20 years ago. So we, we really do a lot of everything that's related to international relations. And so... It's an, I gather it's an independent thing, um, but you're in Brussels, you're right next to the, the whole um, heart of the EU, aren't you? And I gather that um, Herman van Rompuy, uh, in my opinion, one of the best prime ministers Belgium ever had is your president. Um, how independent are you and how much could you say that you voice um, the inside view from Brussels? Yeah, in fact, we're totally independent. Um, we get our funding from many different sources and we don't have to answer to any particular organization. Um, we do get some money from the EU institutions, but this is via, you know, grants or tenders and things like this also from from our members. So we don't. So we are totally um, independent. Herman, yes, he's our president and he's a he's a great guy. I have to say he was an excellent uh, prime minister and also an excellent president of the European Union. He's a very thoughtful and, re and reflective guy. Um, so we're very, very lucky to have him as our as our leader. So, but I think it's fair to say that you, you I mean, judging by some of the, the webinars I've seen that you do, I mean, you have certainly access to some amazing speakers. So you're obviously getting a lot of the inside knowledge on these things. Um, so what I'm, even if it's not your own personal opinion, what do you feel at the moment is the reason that the EU just seems to be a lot more um, interested and engaged with the Caucasus and the Black Sea region at the moment. I mean, we've got this situation with the the, the accession three, um, like Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia. And Georgia we're most interested in, particularly because we're looking at the Caspian region. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose the obvious question I want to ask you is why now? And isn't it a little bit like a, I think Politico had said, a triple rebuff to Russia that, you know, three of the ex-Soviet um, states are sort of getting in line for EU membership. I, I, I suppose the other thing is like having remembered being in Brussels at the time we were worried uh, about the, the Kosovo um, um recognition leading to a possible war in the Caucasus, it slightly worries me to see this triple rebuff, as it were, to Russia. What, where, where is that going to lead? I'm sorry, there's a lot of questions tucked in there. I mean, but could you give that your best shot? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, it's not something brand new. 
the EU's interest in this region. I mean, it goes back um, to, I mean, basically two, two decades, first to the European neighborhood policy um, that was launched, I think, back in um, 2004, just after the uh, Big Bang enlargement. And the reason why it was initiated then is because they didn't want to make to these countries to feel as if they were excluded um, from the EU. They wanted to strengthen relations. And then after that came the so-called Eastern Partnership. Um, if my memory serves me correct, that was in 2008. Um, and the Eastern Partnership countries basically um, incorporates Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia, as you rightly just mentioned, along with Azerbaijan, Armenia um, and Belarus. Uh, and the idea from the side of the EU was not that these countries would become members one day. I mean, they could become members, um, but, but it's certainly not something um, that's going to happen in the short or medium term. The idea was for the EU to, let's say, build stronger relations with these countries. All of them at that point wanted stronger relations with the EU. Um, but over the years, it's been more about building resilience. So building a sort of neighborhood that is resilient to security threats, both externally and internally. And obviously this region is important to the EU because it's its direct neighborhood. So what happens there can have a huge impact on the EU. I mean, we've seen that with, let's say the cr gas crisis between Russia and Ukraine, obviously the war in uh, Donbass and the an annexation of, of Crimea, uh, and more recently in and around the Black Sea region. So it's an area that's very volatile, um, but it's definitely something that's crucially important for the EU's stability itself. I mean, I, I did read when you were writing about Georgia in, in NATO that you, you, I think it was your own writing that you'd said that, you know, we, you shouldn't allow one nation to, to prevent another nation joining different things. But isn't the reality, I mean, we, I was talking to Thomas DeWall and he was suggesting that for, for Russia, uh, prestige is a very important thing that doesn't quite necessarily quantify in, in, in straightforward geopolitical terms. Isn't, isn't it going to be a slap in the face and, and like a problem for, for Russian prestige? And, and, and isn't that therefore possibly a dangerous move? I mean, for the, the for the Russians, I mean, for the EU, Russia is a huge, huge headache. Um, it's not because, I mean, the EU doesn't isn't looking to have any of these countries as members at, at the moment. Um, for Russia, the idea that any of these countries could eventually become um, a member is a is a huge problem. I mean, Russia views this area as, as its you know special sphere of influence where it should have a say in everything that happens there. Um, where it wants to remain a key player, um, but also for Russia, I mean, the idea of having um, democratic, law-abiding uh, countries that respect fundamental rights and freedoms is a terrifying idea um, for President Putin, because obviously if you would have, you know, a democratic, law-abiding Ukraine or Georgia, you know, the Russian people will view this um, and say, maybe we want to have this in Russia as well. So it can be rather an internal headache um, for the Russians, which is why since the initiation of Eastern Partnership back in 2008, the Russians have always tried to, to push back um, against these countries becoming closer economically and politically um, with, the, with the EU. And now you mentioned before this new, this new Troika, um, Georgia, Moldova and Ukraine. I mean, these three countries um, have something in common 
Um, they all want to be members of the EU um, one day, um, but the process is, I mean, for them, the approach of the EU is, let's say it's too slow. Um, so they decided to join up together um, as a way of trying to establish a stronger, stronger relations in different areas with the EU to go further than what's already on the table. And they decided that doing it together is better than doing it by themselves. But I mean, obviously as well, this won't be very straightforward. First, because as I mentioned, the EU is not looking for new members, but also because all of these countries um, are very, let's say they're very adept to having their own crises. I mean, Moldova seems to go from one crisis to another. There's almost no year that goes past where there isn't a new, a new elections. Um, Georgia has also suffered crises recently um, and Ukraine as well. I mean, it's very it's a very bump, bumpy journey um, for all three of these countries. But I mean, all three of those countries also have areas which are either de facto independent or essentially have become semi-part of Russia. I mean, Transnistria, I gather most people in Transnistria, which is technically part of Moldova, already have um, Russian passports, whereas actually Moldovans, most of them already have <laughs> Romanian passports. Um, but 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 again, it, it goes back to this point, you, you know, at the EPC, presumably you are also talking to people in Russia. And what's the message that we're, you're hearing about the reaction? I mean, it, it's, as I say, back in the, at the time of... Um, the just before the Georgian War of 2008, there were a lot of rumblings coming that, oh, you know, re uh, the recognition of Kosovo may trigger something nasty. Are, are you hearing sort of whispers about like Russia's kind of accepting this or, you know, other things we need to be watching out for? No, I mean, Russia doesn't accept any of this. Um, this is why Russia continues to act with, you know, aggression throughout this as this neighborhood. I mean, as you mentioned, Georgia, I mean, you have these, this ongoing um, occupation of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Uh, we all remember the 2008 um, Georgia-Russia -Ru war, uh, which resulted in Russia, let's say, solidifying and enhancing its uh, position in the country. You've also mentioned Transnistria. Um, and now, of course, there's a situation as well in the Donbass, uh, in Ukraine, but also in Crimea. I mean, these are all what you could call um, frozen conflicts with the exception of Crimea, which is, you know, annexed and occupied um, by the Russians illegally. Um, but Russia uses these, um, these occupied areas as areas to project, project power and influence across mm. the broader region. I mean, these conflicts, I mean, most of them have been there since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, and none of them are really any nearer to being resolved than they were then. With, well, we didn't mention Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Oh, we'll, we'll I mean, this is a different story. We'll, but we'll in the case of Georgia, yeah, but in the case of um, Georgia and um, Moldova, I mean, both of these conflicts date back to the breakup of the Soviet Union. And you would expect like 20 years later, more than 20 years later, these conflicts would have been resolved. But unfortunately, they haven't. Um, and in large part, this is to do with Russia's position. Um, obviously, having a conflict on your territory doesn't really um, doesn't really make you more attractive as a future member of the European Union. I think 
the European Union learned very well from the Cyprus conflict. It was a huge mistake, you know, importing a conflict into the Union. That, that mistake won't be um, repeated. But I mean, in the case of Georgia, it's had a very detrimental impact on its, uh, let's say, on its uh, application to join NATO. Um, Georgia wants to be a member of NATO. In fact, Georgia meets all of the criteria to be a member of NATO. It's more advanced than some of the countries that are already in NATO. But the fact that they have this territorial dispute uh, and also the fact that the Russians don't want um, Georgia to join uh, NATO has been a huge obstacle and remains an obstacle uh, to Georgia becoming, which is very unfair, I have to say. Um, it doesn't bode well because it, it makes it look like Russia has a veto on the mem on, on future members of NATO. Huh? Mm. Well, it, I mean, I have to say, if I was a Russian politician listening to it, I would say, oh, right. So all I need is to create a, a breakaway republic in any country and that will stop them doing what we don't want them to do. So, so I mean, you, you can see why I'm sort of intrigued. And uh, the, uh, the, the the other question, that obviously, I, Ukraine isn't really our territory for this podcast, but it does intrigue me. You're saying that um, would if... Um, the Ukraine really did want to join the EU. Would its would the EU accept the Ukraine joining without Crimea, or would it sort of, you know, would I don't know how the mechanisms work. You probably know more about it than me. Would that end up being problematic um, because of the Crimea? I mean, in the event that um, Ukraine would be in a position to join the EU, yes, that would be problematic because they are, you know their occupied territories where Russia is the one occupying not just Crimea, but in the Donbass as well. Mm. But I mean, unfortunately, for the time being, even if Ukraine was, you know, had all of its territory uh, fully restored, there's zero chance that it's going to be joining the EU anytime soon, because mm. the EU is not looking for new members. Right. I so, mean, so the, the ones that have, you know, the prospects or the ones in the Western Balkans and, all, and their processes are very slow. I mean, the EU has had a lot of problems internal and external over the last few years, which, admit, which makes um, future enlargement very unpopular among the populations of right. the EU27. So what does so that that then gives us going just back to the the accession trio? I mean, what what does accession mean then? If they're if realistically they've got zero chance of actually joining, what are they actually signing up for? I mean, it's not actually called accession trio. Oh, it's called my associate trio. Oh, associate um, trio. Sorry. All, all, all three of these. Yeah. My all three of these countries have already have they have association agreements including you know deep free trade agreements with the eu this gives them a very very close relationship with the eu um which can become even closer subject to them carrying out you know very difficult reforms um but it obviously it doesn't mean membership the eu has been very reluctant to even talk about a membership perspective or a european perspective there's no common position on this i mean some countries like the baltic poland and several others in actually, the UK back in the day when it was a member as well su supported membership, but there's other countries, France, Germany, etc., um, that still remain very, very sceptical. I see. Um, and then uh, Charles Michel has has 
been a much more visible figure of late in the Caucasus. Um, so a great, I mean, a great deal of help um, he was giving about finding a, a, a solution to the Georgian political crisis recently, although that's now blown up in our faces again. And I, I, one of the your own webinars, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, having um, very different takes on this from from the ruling party and the opposition party. Um, again, what what kind of way forward do we see? I mean, one of the suggestions in there is: should the EU be pushing harder for for changes in uh, or, or for breaking the deadlock? Um, what, what what was the outcome, as far as you could see? I mean, the EU has leverage over Georgia, they can push Georgia because Georgia wants to be um, an EU member. It wants to have closer relations with the EU. Um, all of Georgia's political parties um, also support this, which makes Georgia quite unique. Also, the, most of the population is also supporting Euro-Atlantic integration. So it means the EU can go and they can say to Georgia, you need to do this, you need to make more progress, you need to stop arguing, because as you would have noticed, uh, Georgia's politicians like to argue. Uh, they have a very antagonistic, I would say, arrogant approach. Um, it's a very cultural thing. The country is very polarized in terms of, of, of parties. Um, but the EU has this, it can say to the Georgians, you know, if you don't do this, we're going to stop funding for this, we're going to stop this financial aid for this, you're not going to get that. Um, they can use this as a lever to push to push the politicians to find a common way forward. This is how they managed to get Georgia to agree back in April um, to an agreement to stop the political crisis that was on, which was ongoing. They threatened Georgia with certain things um, and it was, it was successful. So I think if, if this situation doesn't resolve itself, this new crisis, or if they don't um, start to properly implement the April agreement, um, again, this, uh, this leverage will be used and it should be. No, but do you think sometimes it seems a little unfair that Georgia, in a sense, because it plays along almost more with the Western, uh, the pro-Western thing, seems to be judged with a slightly different yardstick to, say, Armenia or Azerbaijan, which are also re receiving a large amount of money from the Eastern Partnership. And, you know, it, it's sort of almost like because they have said they're pro-Western, we, 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 we expect more of them. W would you say that's fair? And, and, and why? <laughs> Well, I think it's more to do with the ambitions of these three countries and the sort of relationship they want to have um, with the EU, but also with, with the United States. Mm. I mean, Armenia never wanted to be a member um, of the EU. They wanted to have a very different sort of relationship. They, they have an agreement with the EU. It's not an association agreement, um, but it's an agreement which would give them closer economic relation, economic ties, um, strengthen, strengthen different areas in the country and also help them carry out reform. But I mean, Armenia's situation is that it's tied to Russia um, in terms of security. I mean, it's a member of the Eurasian Economic Union. Um, it's part of the CSTO. Russia has a military base in Armenia. So it's always had Russia looming over it. Um, and more so now, actually, after the Karabakh war. Um, whereas Azerbaijan has never been interested either 
in having closer relations with Russia or closer relations with the, with the EU. They wanted to do their own thing. Again, the situation has changed again now slightly because of the, because of the Karabakh war. But I mean, Azerbaijan wanted to have a tailor-made tailor relationship with, with the EU. Um, for Georgia, it's, it's always, all, always been about joining the EU and joining NATO, because for Georgians, they see this as the only way that they can guarantee their security. Um, so it's rather different. So you have three countries in the same region that all have different geostrategic aspirations and goals. So I, I mean, I, I have to admit, I spend more time in Azerbaijan than any of the others. Um, but the there's a slight perception there. And of course, everyone's very biased in the region. Don't get me wrong. I do get that. But there is a perception that the EU often seems to be slightly biased pro-Armenia um, in, uh, in the war. And that's possibly because President Macron has to stand up for his Armenian, large Armenian community in France. Um, would you say there's any truth in that or is that just a, an entirely a misconception? Well, I mean, there's definitely truth in the fact that France um, was biased during the war. I mean, there was, you know, several statements made and things said. I mean, I think this is this is very clear. Um, but I mean, obviously, you know, President Macron in France doesn't represent the position of the of the EU. I mean, the issue with the EU during the war is that they really didn't do anything at all. Uh, <laughs> and they sort of stood on the sidelines while other actors, namely Russia and Turkey, you know, took over the whole show, um, which resulted in the situation we have there today. Um, and then afterwards, the European Union complains about the fact that the Russians have increased their influence in the region and that Turkey, you know, supplied drones to um, Azerbaijan and had a very, you know, malign role and has increased its presence in the region. But I mean, the EU didn't come up with anything. They didn't do anything. Um, they were just, as I said, rather silent and inactive, um, which probably isn't a huge surprise um, for, for many people, actually, uh, particularly when it comes to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, because they've always had a very marginal role in terms of, mm. of the Karabakh conflict. And I think this was reflected um, again during, during the war. But it, it was very interesting to me when... Um... Louis, uh, sorry, Louis, <laughs> Charles Michel, I always think of his father. Uh, when Charles Michel um, was in both Baku and Yerevan, he, he, he did specifically suggest that, um, as well as Minsk, the EU might be there to give a sort of an unbiased helping hand. Um, so that seems to me a new signal and I just, and, and, and a hopeful one too. I, I just wonder how seriously does anyone in the EU really expect that that helping hand will be called for? And what actually could the EU do to, to help push for a more um, uh, stable peace? Well, I think that the visit of um, Charles Michel um, recently to the, to the Caucasus and also the earlier visit to Georgia um, in April, I think this was first of all, a recognition from the side of the EU that they need to reboot um, their present presence and influence um, in the South Caucasus, not just because of um, the fact that they were sidelined during the Karabakh war, um, but also because of Joseph Borrell's disastrous visit 
um, to Moscow earlier this year, where he was, you know, humiliated by uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov. Um, so they were trying to like project themselves, you know, as a serious foreign policy actor, which is why they jumped at the chance um, to, neg to negotiate this agreement, first of all, in Georgia, but then more recently to try and put themselves back on the geopolitical map um, in Armenia and Azerbaijan, because I think it was quite clearly recognized that after the war, the EU was left very much, you know, behind everybody else. Uh, and they needed to reassert themselves any way they can. How effective that is going to be, I don't know. I don't think that the EU is going to be as important to Armenia as it was before the war. We saw that in the recent elections, the, the recent prime minister elections in uh, Armenia when Pashinyan was elected. But all of the parties, you know, ran on, we want to strengthen relations with Russian, Russia campaigns. Um, which would have never happened before. And I think in Azerbaijan, I mean, I think there's still a sour taste in the mouths of a lot of Azerbaijanis um, over, as you mentioned, the role of the EU or the, or the lack of the role um, and the statements that came from France um, during the Karabakh war. I think there's also been a sort of downgrading um, of relations, political relations with Azerbaijan. But I mean, that said, the EU, you know, can play a role in, in financial support um, for peace building, uh, reconstruction and many other things related to the new situation. So there is still some opportunities for the EU. But I mean, the EU is the first to waste an opportunity when it's presented. Right. Um, so they need to really push push forward and remain and remain proactive. Um, and let's hope that there's not a new crisis somewhere else, because if there's another crisis somewhere else, the EU's attention on the South Caucasus, um, which is quite limited anyway, will, will totally disappear again. Well, I, I, it's, it's not the most positive of messages, but I'm, I'm afraid there is this uh, impression that the, the EU does tend to be a little bit impotent in terms of foreign policy. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm, we're running out of time now. I had hoped to well, just let, throw in one last little question, because I know you've lived in Turkey and you're, you, you have a lot of um, knowledge of the Turkish side of these issues. But Turkey itself has been a more um, important factor this time in, um, uh, in, in the Caucasus and particularly in the, the, the late, recent Karabakh war. Um, is there a chance, do you think, that Turkey is going to open the board with Armenia? And do you think that what it, what is Turkey's new role? I mean, has it changed substantially or is it all bluster? No, I think Turkey's role has changed. I mean, Turkey has enlarged its um, presence um, in the Caucasus. I mean, it already had quite a significant role in the Caucasus economically with Georgia um, and with Azerbaijan and also in security cooperation, both bilaterally, but also within NATO. I mean, Turkey has been helping train troops in Georgia and Azerbaijan um, for years. But clearly, you know, the, the policy of uh, Ankara these days is to continue to enhance and build um, on the new position that they have in that region. This challenges Russia's position, of course, so it's probably not that welcomed in Moscow, but there's nothing President Putin um, can do about that. Um, but actually, this opens the door for the European Union. I mean, if the European Union was smart, um, this is a good opportunity to work together with Turkey in this region um, on issues of mutual 
mutual interest and cooperate with Turkey. So far, we haven't seen that. Um, but I think it's something that, that they should definitely, definitely um, consider because working together actually will facilitate um, efforts to push back against Russia um, and also China. And this is not just in the South Caucasus. You can say this for the whole Black Sea region because Turkey is now a much more proactive foreign policy player in all of the countries around the Black Sea. And many of Turkey's uh, strategic objectives are actually very much in line with the ones of the EU. So there's also a, a space there. But I mean, Turkish foreign policy has changed forever. You know, it's no longer, you know, beholden um, to the foreign policy priorities of the United States uh, or Europe. I mean, those days have long gone. That horse left the stable many years ago. <laughs> Turkey is now doing what's best for Turkey. You know, sometimes we like it, sometimes we don't. I mean, most of the time Europe complains, complains a lot about Turkey, but I think they need to have a much more nuanced approach uh, to Turkish foreign policy and not just seeing it as very black and white. Well, Amanda, thank you so much. That's been a really interesting chat. Uh, you've been listening to the Caspian podcast with me, Mark Elliott, and with Amanda Paul in Brussels. Thanks so much for watching, and I hope you'll join us again next time.